0: I tell everybody that joins this company it's billion dollars or bust. This is either going to be a billion dollar company or we're going to we're going to burn to the ground. You know, I turned 42 this year we started when I was 40. I said this is a 5-year, you know, plan, 10-year extension, you know, 10-year extension potentially, we want to be a billion dollar company valuation by by 2025 and we're on that path to get there.
1: You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, B2B
2: leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge again, and today my guest is Eric Kostelnik. He's the founder and CEO of Postal.io. If you don't know about this service, it's super fun, and I can't wait to talk about this. Eric, uh, give a little introduction, you know, of of yourself, and you know a little bit of your history. I read through your your LinkedIn; it reads like uh, a whole, you know, rolodex of awesome names. So you you have done some things. I can't wait to talk about it.
0: Oh, thanks, Ledge. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, we're 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 happy that. Um you know, we're here and, and have a thriving company and, and ultimately uh, some incredible customers and, and employees to, 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 that are supporting us and, and building this venture. But uh, I've had quite a, a bit of experience, spent the last, you know, 15 years in the startup world was VP of sales, monetization, a company called Identified, and then moved to Reich. That was Workday's first acquisition, and then moved to Reich, very, early on, built on that go-to-market strategy, and was VP of sales over there, and grew that to you know, $40 million in, in, in a book of business over a couple of years, and then decided to you know, stop making other founders rich and make myself rich. <laughs> it's,
1: you know, that, started my yeah. own
0: company, yeah, and uh, started uh, texture Recruit. Which was a social recruiting, or which was a communication engagement platform for for recruiting and and HR, and uh, sold that off to uh, our strategic partner in ISMS uh, after four years, and started Postal here along with my buddy who I started uh, text recruit with at Danner and. Yeah, man, it's one of those storybooks, man. So it's, Postal's on fire and it's been a great ride. So excited to tell you more about what's going on.
2: Please. So start with, you know, for anybody who doesn't know Postal, you know, the service you provide and the the stuff, uh, and then we'll get into, you know, after that, maybe like where this idea come from and, you know, why'd you do it in the first place? So.
0: Yeah, so after Tech Recruit, I really wanted to venture into sales and martech. I I I'd really been an operational leader uh, when it came to marketing and sales over my career and I just saw some inefficiencies in this channel that really was completely underrepresented by technology and investment and resources. And that's this offline channel. It's it's everything that you send into uh, your client base or your prospect base or your even your employees that's in the offline that creates these tangible experiences and these tactile experiences that uh, you just can't get through digital. And the reality is, is that you know, the last 20 years have been 100% spent on that digital channel in optimizing digital. So I figured why not build a, a solution that, that actually Consolidated all this offline engagement, you know, build a badass marketing automation, sales automation tool that integrated into these systems, and then tied it all back into Salesforce or HubSpot to create attribution on to these actual activities that are happening in the off- or offline world, and build a massive marketplace of all the best vendors in the world to supply all these things. And you know, so we we took a lot of hints from from uh, you know our friends at HubSpot and and Outreach. Uh, and and then looked at these B2C e-commerce platforms like DoorDash and Shopify, and found that uh, you know building a, a marketplace and a and a, really a two-sided marketplace was going to be the easiest way for us to go and attack this this technology opportunity. So yeah, and obviously we're here. We've been launched the, launched the product and company about two years ago, and um, launched the product right into COVID times, and during that time bizarre phenomenon, but it actually gave us a tailwind. And we're, we're almost at the 200 customer mark in less than a year in market. So it's uh, one of the fast, well, it's been the fastest growing company that I've had, had the pleasure of working on or working with. Um, so it's been super fun.
2: And so the use case is physical products, swag, and i guess the automation around let's say i want to touch base with a prospect and i want to make sure they get a gift or, or something of that nature kind of build all that in might
0: be direct mail you know it's it's anything it's direct mail it's handwritten notes it's gift cards it's it's bottles of wine it's flower arrangements it's Whatever you're sending a customer to create a differentiation in your in your process, um, we know that by interjecting offline and experiences through postal through your marketing and sales automation, it lifts it 20%. So your conversion rate automatically increases by 20%. So companies that have been doing this manually forever, which every single company I've ever worked with, it's like, yeah, write a note to your prospect, send them, you know, a piece of swag, send them a you know, case of golf balls. I still, I personally still get tons of stuff in the offline, and it's funny when I get it because I'm like, boy, you should be using postal, and uh, I'd be more than happy to to talk to you guys if if uh, if you're using our product. But you know, at, at the end of the day, it's 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 really this channel of the offline has been underrepresented, and, and uh, it's exciting to see companies get excited about being able to scale uh, this outreach because it it is driving tremendous value uh, to businesses that that are incorporating it into their outreach.
2: How did you, so the immediate problem that comes to mind with COVID is that everybody went to their house. So how'd you start getting there? Yeah. How'd you figure out the address problem? That, That would not have been something you would have predicted early on.
0: No, that was an easy fix though, because you know, email, digital, sometimes you have to leverage that to leverage the offline. And so we just created branded emails and a workflow that um, that verified people's addresses and then sent it along. And then just like people have shopping experiences online, we're creating a shopping experience for our customers and to create with their customers and, and prospects and and employees. So it's it's as easy as, you know, being able to to select an item send it to your prospect base and then they accept that whether through uh, an email or a link uh, they verify their address and then that recipient then gets the automatic you know delivery information tracking information of when they get the thing and then the reps get the information on when it gets delivered so they can create you know follow-up points on that too so it's it's all really connected into this whole entire experience that we're trying to drive and that is helping brands create connections with uh with their prospects and their customers that they might not have had through just the pure, pure pure digital side of things.
2: And I mean it reminds me of some of the work I did, you know, early on in, in I guess you know drop shipping and 3 PL and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Is that what the, the back end looks like? Like how do actual physical goods move around?
0: That's a good question. Yeah. So if you think about think about the story of Doordash. That's really our, our main inspiration for this business on the vendor side of things. What DoorDash decided was, I'm not going to build kitchens. I'm not going to make food. What I'm going to do is go out there and partner with all those restaurants that have kitchens and make food. And then we're going to create a, a marketplace for people to be able to search those things and create ordering and then sending uh, that food through the delivery network. No, they had to create that delivery network, but what we've been able to do is is partner with logistics companies that are, that's their core competency. Their core competency is to get goods and whether that's a customized item that uh, one of our customers create through the postal concierge or something that they need to house, like sometimes companies have books that their founders write and they order a bunch of them and they need to store them somewhere. That is a core competency of these logistics partners. So we just connect them through the API into postal and then you can access all your inventory wherever it might be at whatever warehouse it might be so really if you think about what postal is doing it's truly the infrastructure technology infrastructure um, of this whole entire ecosystem of of the sending in the offline
2: so you really have a a triad there because you have the 3pl you have the vendor of the good or whatever the thing is and then you have your connection to the the customer there is it's it's dual-sided twice (laughs) essentially yours.
0: that that is correct and the the majority of our vendors actually are able to uh have instead of drop shipping they they are able to execute the sends through the back end because if you think about postal vendor for vendors that's the application that just instructs them when to send what to send and who to send it to so they offer their their marketplace items from their inventory inside of postal That's an automated function on the back end side of things. And then when those orders come through, they get notifications and they can execute sending those orders off. So, you know, I think the feel good story about this is that all of our customers have brought vendors along with them. Like a lot of customers are like, hey, we want to give our business to the local coffee shop here in town, or we want to give the business to, you know, a friend of ours that, that we know that's hurting from COVID. And, for me being able to impact local communities through building a a vendor network and giving these companies that have gotten destroyed by covid you know these little retailers the ability to tap into this 125 billion dollar market that is corporate offline spend is just a massive massive opportunity for them too so you know for me it's it's you know let's build a, a a solid marketing sales automation system that you can do all the tracking and automation you want but let's bring in these vendors that you know can provide this asset these assets and these these offerings to our customer base at scale and help them tap into uh that and when when obviously customers are are looking to do something unique that some of our vendors aren't able to offer then they go through our concierge service we spec all that things out what they want to send we send it to the warehouse and just like our vendors you know the warehouse then takes the back end of postal and and fulfills those orders uh, accordingly so Again we're not in the business of touching the actual product just like doordash is not not in the business of, of touching the, the actual product except in the delivery process but that that piece uh, is being fulfilled by our, our warehousing vendors which is which is great
2: yeah yeah really cool what have you learned in this adventure that you didn't predict you know early on I'm sure you had a model in your head and you know some of the things went as planned and um, some things were surprising what what was that look like
0: well, nobody can prepare you to launch uh, a company in the middle of a one a, once in a hundred-year cycle pandemic. So that is probably like if you were to, if I were to list the 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 risks of the business, which we did, you know, prior to executing the, trying to execute the business model, you know, pandemic was not on that list. It wasn't uh, on anybody's so, list. <laughs> correct. Correct. So, how do you? How, so, what are you able to do? And we, the only thing you can do is move forward. Um, and there's no, you know, there's no reason why you should be stopping your business and, you know, and adjusting for the pandemic. From a risk perspective, you need to understand, hey, what risks does this p- present to you? But for us, because we believed we actually had a tailwind with COVID, and companies were locking their marketing closets up and trying to figure out how they could solve this problem with technology. That that was square suited right in our wheelhouse, so that was actually a benefit for us. And after we found product market fit in 2020, you know, it just it's been a it's been a rocket ship since then. So I think that there's there's always challenges that that you're faced with, and, and no, no matter if it's a pandemic or you know something personal or something that you just can't control, you know, from a market perspective or an e- economic perspective. You, know, you just got to make sure you're agile enough in order to, to right the ship and uh, and take it in the right direction. And I feel like you, you could only do that by having amazing people that support you. And, um, you know, this this crew that we have here at Postal has been, I call it the all-star crew from Jen, my like, our, our experiences in, in business. We've been able to pull over some incredible, incredible talent that help us weather the storm and ultimately, you know, created opportunity out of what was a, a pretty tough time um so now obviously we're, we're better for it and uh, you know as as we start to come out of this pandemic the business is even stronger so i actually i think it's uh it was a great great experience and it, you know you just got to work through these things and and it was yeah, ended up being awesome so we're, we're in good shape
2: i hear that story from serial founders so much like uh, the, the people collecting over the course of your adventures that I, and I, I've had the same experience that, uh, you know, many businesses down the line, I, I have this collection of the best people that I've cherry picked and stayed in touch with along the way. I just, I think that's critical. I just don't know if you could hire from scratch and uh, create those, uh, you know, mind reading connections that you have with those, those folks without having been in the trenches together.
0: Yeah, I think it's, so I think it's doable. I because th- I've done it before. You know, I, like I wasn't when I became a founder. So when I was building sales and marketing teams, you have to have a really good recruiter that is a partner of yours. And I luckily was able to have my wife, who is an incredible recruiter, or was an incredible recruiter. So she knew who I meshed with. She knew the profile, and we had identified these profiles of people, you know, over the last ten years that worked well with Eric. And at the end of the day, like you have to be really working well with your leadership and understanding how to. And what we did was we established this foundation of, of athletes and musicians and you know, theater actors, people that, that had this, and this is in the sales and marketing side, side of the house, people that had this almost chip on their shoulder uh, and this ability to perform at, at stressful times. And we actually developed a, a model of how to recruit for those people. And we're very successful on that. Um, and as a founder, you know when we started Text Recruit, which was the last business that you know Jed and I, Jed was a part of that business as well, and and my co-founder there as well. You know that 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 kind of model of establishing who you mesh with, you need to make sure that you keep that close. And for your for your for people who are listening that don't have, you know, maybe maybe your first venture or have, have not had a lot of experience hiring. You know, you really got to partner well with your recruiting team or an outsourced recruiter that really knows that profile. Um, and you have to profile these people out, and really understand their stories and how they fit into your into your world. And then, if you do it right and you help them earn money, have fun, and learn, which is the three core of of things that we do, right? You want to earn, learn, and have fun. If you're able to do that, then they'll come back, and you know they'll want to they'll want to do it again and that's what we've had with with postal you know there's people that have had that experience and we hope that you know i've seen some of my leadership over the the years move into other companies and taking the process and methodology and recruiting strategy that we had which is so much fun for me to see and they're creating their own ways of of, uh, of of gathering and building that network but network is actually absolutely a huge component of the success of any business and and um, you know any any public company founder that will that you talk to about that will will say the same thing
2: yeah absolutely to expound on that how did you figure out the profile of people who work well with eric i mean I, that's you know it's simple and yet profound you know <laughs> because that it meaningfully does not include everyone and I think we often think about this idea that we have to have this perfectly balanced team of you know different types of, of folks, but you're saying there's a profile that, that worked for you and you stuck to it, but how'd you get there?
0: Yeah, so first off, definitely important to have profiles of people that are not exactly the same. So my profile is is also also understanding that you can't have it overloaded on one side. So the way I looked at it, so when I was younger, you know, I, I moved around a ton when I was a kid. I, we moved. I was born in Long Beach, and then moved to Northern California, and then moved to the Midwest, and then moved to New Jersey and Philly, and and you know, out in Pennsylvania. So I moved around, and then I eventually got back to the Bay Area. Now we're down in slow. So all this life experience that I've had in meeting people, there was kind of I established a, a way very as a young, a young kid of how I would interact with people. And that would be through sports, through music, or through theater, right? So never a big actor, but I just, you know, I I appreciated the arts. I just appreciate people that are in that that world that can get on a stage and and really perform, right? That's such an and that, by the way, as a as a you know, basketball player in high school and college, as well as you know playing sports my whole entire life, that also is you're on a stage and you have to perform extremely well. in Music and understanding the theory behind music and then performing, all of those things are like very important parts of my life that I was able to to experience in my life. And those are kind of the core fundamentals of the people that I hire. And generally, when you find those people that have had those those experiences of of the arts or with sports, they generally have gone through something that has been challenging for them, or they've failed in points in their life that might have been big failures, right? Not getting the starting job, or not being able to get a first chair, or not, you know, not doing something from a theater perspective that you know that, that that audition went wrong or something. All those things, you know, get get into a position where you just you know, they, it creates chips on shoulders. And I ask people about what their chip on their shoulder is during the interview process. And some people are like, I don't have a chip on my shoulder. It's like, no, everybody's got a chip on their shoulder. What are you, what are you trying, what are you trying to do? What are you, what are you trying to do? It's like, and I think, you know, growing up and, and, you know, and kind of going through that experience of, of failing and trying to prove that's that's something that drives I think everybody. And I like finding those people that like want to like prove something. They want to be the best and they wanna, you know, be this this valuable part of either their family or their community and, and just have this like intrinsic drive. And that's a that's a big big piece of
2: this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it doesn't surprise me that you originally were staffing sales teams with <laughs> with that guy. So, certainly relate yeah. to the you know the, the stagecraft of the sale. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Um you gotta be a good
0: storyteller too, man. Storytelling is is, yeah. is a key. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So. Absolutely. And and that's an interesting thing to, you know, as I I meet different types of founders who are you know they maybe they come from the product and engineering side or they come from the sales side and a lot of CEOs come from you know so sort the of marketing arena and I I think that that really colors the the culture uh you know just you mm-hmm. have that base you have that thing that you you know are you built around I, I think of it like you know the the carousel at the park you know there's a bunch of horses on there but let's face it everybody mm-hmm. has their favorite horse you know and totally uh, yep you know so how has that spoken to you being the sales-based founder,
0: so um, it's good to have a, a business partner that is is fairly opposite. So you know Jed is is uh, is also an athlete and he's he's he was a great water water polo player, but he's a big thinker and an incredible engineer. Um, but I've known Jed and we've been buddies for you know twenty years. So being able to have people that are different from you where you know there's there's someone that's introverted and someone that's extroverted which is me and Jed it's those components are very important because you need to be able to speak to different people that might have these experiences, but they're just different, right? They're just different people. And so we try to you know, find and have a balance of the people that we hire, and try to make sure it's not completely overweighted in different areas. Because a lot of people just are di- just different personalities, and so you ha- you got to be a bit of a chameleon when it comes to you know being able to show people that you can be. Agile when, when hiring and that not everybody needs to be loud and boisterous and <laughs> can tell a great story. Some people actually are more introverted and, and are thinkers and they speak when they have something really important to say. And that's that's ultimately what we look for as well.
2: So how from a a CEO leadership perspective, and you talked about earn, learn and have fun. I guess those are you know those be core values there and um, you're often having to think then on the strategic side of like how do you integrate people, how do you build and maintain and, and grow teams. Scale is obviously a top of mind when you're you know sort of yeah. in the hyper growth and all that. Uh, and my own experience of of scale is you know I think it's sort of running around the mountain pushing like the boulders up you know sort of inch by inch all the way around, <laughs> kind of yep. getting to the top there. And invariably you scale one function and break something else, and you know sort of. <laughs> Keep going and going and going. Uh, I know that's normal. I wonder, you know, what what tips and tricks have you found to, you know, sort of scale and not break things, you know, along the way too much.
0: So, not micromanaging is number one. You have to let people fail. You just, you just, it's it's going to happen, and you have to have hard conversations when it does, because the best learning experience. We talk about little fires and big fires, so. Little fires are totally fine. Bunch of little fires, concerning if there's a bunch of little fires in the same area, because that could turn into a big fire. But the little fires are okay. So as a leader, you have to help people distinguish what is a big fire and what is a little fire. And so for us, we're consistently figuring out, okay, what little fires are we starting along the way? And you just have to make sure that people are agile enough to be able to put those out on their own and not rely on leadership in order to put the little fires out. And then the big fires are the ones that you have to fight together and then ultimately, you know, put them out or determine it's just just going to burn forever. And how do we kind of how do we move around this and create a different path if this is just going to be a consistent burning area? And if it's by the way, if it's something that's consistently burning, you ha- you do have to, and it's a big fire, you have to eventually understand: is this go- is do I need to move my business structure, like my operating plan of how I'm going to run this business, to avoid this this fire? Um, and there's been several instances in every business I've been a part of to where you're just like, oh my god, that's a massive fire that we can't put out. Like, how are we actually going to deal with this? And You can't throw enough resources at it, Um, or you can sometimes, and then it's just like you just burn a ton of cash. So you also have to understand like how much is it going to cost to put this fire out, Um, or maybe you just pivot and and go in a different direction. So I think I think that there's a lot there, and for your listeners, I think that you know, you you just have to rely on your people and have a consistent feedback engine into that those people but with not over micromanaging them and help them understand to identify small fires versus big fires and f- future state, like where they think potential fires are gonna happen. So and, and you also have I think you also one one other point to this is you also have to ensure that everybody really understands the vision of the business. So you have to make sure that you're consistently sharing the vision and where we're going and why it's important and why it's changing the world and all these different places that you see this business going. You have to continue to share that, share that, share that, and overshare that because by doing that, people will continue to solidify how they are built into this vision and where they are owning parts of that. And then they can go in and and, t- and do the risk analysis of what they're working on specifically.
2: Right, right. And uh, that predictive capacity is really a huge lesson to be able to take downstream for anybody. It's just like, if you know if I move these levers, am I causing other things to break? Am I, where are my dependencies? Like what fires? Am I potentially stoking or, or mm-hmm. pouring fuel on? And We're often, setting, yeah. Or you'll see those you know cross functional types of things you know sales mm-hmm. can do a thing that happens to really have major financial or operating you know issues or you know engineers can uh, getting, build getting stuff the or, wrong
0: client in that's giving you the wrong direction or you just it's too big of a client to support or you know companies you're, you're always blinded by the sale and i think sometimes you know we've been in a couple situations in my past where yeah, you know, big companies, big deals are always super awesome, but are they taking you in the wrong direction from a product perspective? And you got to be cognizant about that. And again, that's where sharing the vision with your whole entire leadership team comes in so important, because if they're bought in on the vision and the core values and your mission statement and all those components that you need to have very early on, then they're going to understand, yeah, this is... This is either a challenge that we can't get around or you know, we, we believe that we can we can get around this. Or we're okay with this happening because of this change and we just have to address it later. Sometimes you gotta kick the can too. I mean it's if you're if you're kicking the can down down the road, it's like, you know, you just know you know that can we gotta pick that can up eventually, but again, it's
2: the like the small fires big fires right, so technical and process debt. i mean one way or another you're financing that thing and you may be borrowing from the future or or, you, or yeah. you're borrowing from now or and you don't know the interest rate and i mean those are the places that start to really you know accumulate and, and hurt later on
0: yeah the the investment of, of resources um because resources and time or resources are are finite Right, and time is finite in startup land. So, you, you only have a certain amount of time. You only have a certain amount of money. And you know that money and that time needs you. Need you need to build a plan in order to execute that that time, those resources, and that vision of where you're going. And if you don't have the right people or processes or technology involved in the in the in the company, then you run into issues because it's just it you just are not. You're not set up for success, and many many gravestones that are out there in Silicon Valley and all over the world, you know, can be, you can look back on that going, man, that was a great idea. Why did that fail? Well, it just so happened that it wasn't the right team or the right processes or the right technology to scale and attack that that opportunity. Um, and sometimes you get a, a competitor that comes along and does it better and faster and cheaper, right? And sometimes that becomes the leader in the space and you can point to those you know in every industry in every category of hey who was the third what's the third mover advantage what's the fifth mover advantage and uh being a first mover advantage is great we had that at text recruit but you know at postal we're like a fifth mover advantage well that allowed us to be extremely agile when it came to building this company because we knew a lot about what was going wrong in this industry and so that allowed us to to build you know a scalable business like we have today
2: yeah absolutely And you can look at uh, the lessons learned from other people's burning piles of money <laughs> and sort of not do those things how how much how in depth was that research and planning Phase when you you knew you wanted to tackle the space, uh, but you know the, the preparation to say you know are are we right about the space? What what do we know and what do we not know? And uh, you know I think people don't maybe invest enough there before they jump into <laughs> startup. You know, so
0: I 100% agree. If you're going to spend the next five to ten years on something, you you better spend at least a year. Like figuring out if it's something that you want to spend the next five to 10 years on and stake your claim. Right. You know, like before it was like, like, let's just go like way back. Like, you know, they were settling the West. And what was it? It was literally a race to get into the West and stake your claim. But those that stake their claim on the places that eventually became massive metros or areas, they knew what claim they wanted to stake. They just went in freaking, they said, I'm going to go there and they go and they stake it. Some people were just like, I want to stake as many claims as possible. So I'm going to hire a bunch and maybe a couple of them will work out. But. That's the same thing with with this. there are gonna be some companies and founders that decide to like do a ton of things and like state their claims and then by the way, that's not horrible. That's still a good strategy, but maybe those claims are going to be smaller for me. I wanted to make sure that the claim that we staked and we we understood where the opportunity was and the 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 historical i guess similarities to Online marketing automation and offline marketing automation, and what we were going after—that there was a lot of correlation between what we knew in the past. And so, you look back on historics, you look back on market size, you look back, you look at you know where you can build this business and and set your you know set your place up, how you build the business from a investment standpoint. Um, do you want to bootstrap it? Do you want to raise capital? Do you have that network up to do those things? Um, all those things are important but you know you you have to make sure that your you know your your significant other understands and you your family knows that like this investment that you're about to make is going to be a 5 year investment and a lot of times like people don't have like the partners in place in order to kind of run things by and they just get into things and next thing you know they got VCs biting on everything that they're doing and they just aren't set up from a personal standpoint that they have a support network to help them get to where they need to be and i think that that's you know, the, the kind of the unsung heroes of all this amazing companies are those those people around even from a personal standpoint that that help you. And that having founders and, and leaders in my network who support postal, you know, and some of the my favorite people in the world are a part of this organization. And, you know, they've been mentors and bosses and you know, you know, billion dollar company valuation founders, like and you know, it's it's like this, these people have seen it, done it, but they know that they need support too, and everybody needs support around what you do. So that personal network is uh, is very important because you could be selling yourself a dream that's never going to happen, and um, you got to make sure you have people around you that tell you that. You know, that's... Good thing is my wife also tells me when I'm chasing a dream that it's not a good idea, and uh, <laughs> she, she 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 she's seen that many times before, so so uh, you know there's 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 kind of a bs test in there with your network and and the people around you
2: Uh, as as postal
0: postal definitely passed the bs test so it was (laughs) was good and
2: as the idea founder type you know i i think what never makes it on the linkedin and the the storyline is you know all the epically terrible choices that we could have made that we luckily we were advised not to and or No, I had 10. I had
0: 10 before we started Postal. right? And like five were in the MarTech sales tech space. (laughs) And the other ones were like bananas. Like they were, and like, I remember there's a couple I won't even share because they're the most ridiculous ideas ever. But you're like, I think this maybe could be a thing, you know? And it's like, and it was just a really bad idea. But the the reality is like, you just have ideas. You got to be able to share them with people that you trust and and who, who trust you that you're not You know, you're just running things by them and then, you know, a couple stick and then you got to do the research and dig in. And, you know, we we were we involved our our venture capital partner very early on in this one because we knew it was going to be capital intensive. And so by connecting with Mayfield, you know, early on in in my career, when we were raising money at Text Recruit and Manny at at Outrage, you know, those guys helped me form this idea and really build it into uh, an executable you know, vision of how, how we could build the company. And, and so you, you just got to find people around that have done it and, you know, HubSpot guys are part of it. And, and, you know, people that are at box and Google and you know, all these companies are a part of this. So it's, it's really cool to have like share the, the success with them too, cause they're on the cap table. You know, you got to bring people into the cap table that, that can provide value. And a lot of these guys, you know, we have in this network, um, are on a cap table and, and believe in what we're doing. So they're invaluable resources as you move forward.
2: Very cool. Very cool. Great insights. I love that. I'll give uh I guess a last one or two minutes to put your futurist hat on and kind of say, you know, what's next and looking forward over the next couple of years. What are you guys trying to pull off personally, professionally? You know, what's it look like for you?
0: So I I tell everybody that joins this company it's billion dollars or bust. This is either going to be a billion dollar company or we're going to we're going to burn to the ground. This is like you know i turned 42 this year we started when i was 40 i said this is a this is a five-year you know plan 10-year extension you know 10-year extension potentially we want to be a billion dollar company valuation by by uh by 2025 and we're on that path to get there so you know for us it's it's all about executing the vision of this company and at the end of the day it's going to work or it's not and we're just going to take our experiences and our network and and put it to work and you know 5 years from now it'll be either a public company and and extremely valuable to our shareholders or it won't be and that's just what we're working on
2: all right i'm going to put it on the calendar just to check back in so.
0: <laughs> please do man please do please do i would love to be right i would love to be right but we know how all these things go and and this is going to be this has the biggest chance of it this this absolutely does in my whole entire experience. So it has the it has the the best chance. Um, so I just look at this and just go, this is an execution opportunity. Can we execute at scale? And I think you know we're the people to do it, and that makes me excited.
2: Rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, man. Eric, man, thanks for coming on, sharing all this stuff. Love the stories, and uh, I know the audience got a lot out of it. Appreciate it, Ledge. If uh, anybody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to do it?
0: LinkedIn we're on that I'm active on it I read all my messages I get back to all my messages you know if you hit me up yeah I will respond to you um I do think that that's it's like fake that when people just don't get back to you or you know, it's like they try to big time. I try to answer everybody. Everybody's trying to start something, or has an idea, trying to sell something to me. I don't buy a lot of stuff from people that hit me up on LinkedIn. So if if you're trying to sell, find one of the leaders that that is that you're trying to sell to in the company, and uh, and hit them up. Um, but uh, you know, people that have ideas or or want to run stuff by me, uh, shoot me a note, and I'd be happy to get back to you. Uh, but uh,
2: that's that's the best place. Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to seeing what happens with Postal and thanks so much for hanging
1: out.
0: Appreciate you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.